This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The African American Male School Adaptability Crisis, uh, in short form, AMSAC. Uh, the subtitle, Its Source and Solution Planted in the African American Garden of Eden. A mouthful. And joining me from near New York City is the author, Joe L. Remsen. Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be on your program. Well, it's a, an honor to visit with you. You are a man of education and obviously thoughtful thinking. This page, uh, the pages in your in your book, I, I would call them a page turner, but uh, you'd have to uh, turn about 937 pages to get through the the contents. Tell a little of your background history and and how this book got to be uh, got to be put into publication. Well, uh, I've spent some 41 years in the field of education, Jay. I've been a, a teacher, uh, an administrator, and so on, and I ended up as a dean of students at Bronx Community College, which was probably my most rewarding job because I kind of felt I was born for it. Uh, I love working with the students and all and so on. They were challenging, of course, <laughs> right. as students can be, but it was a very rewarding experience, and I felt that I was suited for it, and I loved the job. And while I was dean, uh, Jay, what I did is I authored and administered a program uh, for minority males. And the idea was to uh, assist them in getting through college and getting into a career uh, because that is something that's been very challenging for our, our minority males. So I got a grant to see what we could do to increase their rate of retention and their rate of graduation. And the program turned out to be somewhat successful. You know, the, uh, we got a somewhat higher retention rate and so on. And as a result, when I retired, I said, well, I think I would like to continue that program. Beautiful. But, yeah, but to continue that program, I had to have some institutional support. So what I decided to do, Jay, is to set up my own foundation uh, so that that foundation could continue the program that I had started at Bronx Community College. So that's what I did. I set up what I call the Remsen Foundation uh, in 2002, et cetera. Um, and then my challenge, Jay, was how do I get the foundation to become viable right. and to really work? Because it's not so easy to just to start in the private sector something on your own and get it established and recognized. So ultimately I came up with the idea that the way to do it is let's write a book. So finally, in the process of working on the program that I had started at Bronx Community College, I got the idea, let's turn what I'm working on, and I'd get a lot, get a, a lot of information for the program, et cetera. Let's turn that information into a book. And maybe with that book, we can do two things. We can attract some funding so that we could get this program funded, and we can attract a school who is willing to try out the program and above all, we can get some deep pockets to provide the money for the foundation. So that's how it all got started, Jay. And you got started, and you were born born into a very wealthy family too, if I understand your history. 
No, I wish I were, Dave. <laughs> well, it was. It, I think, Jay, I, I think you have a misunderstanding about history. Well, you're. I, I would call Jay, it. I, I would call the, 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 I'm sorry. Go, 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 go I, ahead. I interrupted I would, you. That's okay. I was just going to say it was wealthy in the important areas of life. Tell, tell my listeners a little of your history, your family history. Well, listen, Jay, I was born in the state of Tennessee, sharecropping family. Uh, we were born on a farm and sharecropping. People may not be familiar with the concept. The idea is that uh, you live on someone's farm and they let you live on their land and in their house, etc. And in re- return, you give them half of the profits that you make from raising crops, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's what sharecropping was. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the kind of family I was born in. And Jay, I was born in a family of 11. Uh, and we, it was, uh, listen, it was poverty at, at its ultimate uh, depth, you might say. Sure. Uh, listen, often we didn't have the food we want, we didn't have the clothing we want, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was, it was a struggle for us. And your, uh, but, your, your, dad, and, who, your dad, who was mm-hmm. not formally educated, though, inspired you to get an education. I mean, that was a high priority in your family, was it not? Uh, listen, Jay, he was a remarkable man. And where he got the idea from, I don't know the idea that I should get an education. But he kind of drummed that into me. Although he himself was not educated, the people around us were not educated. But he often said to me, boy, regardless of what you do, go to school and get yourself an education. So he uh, bought me books, supply clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, I don't know where he got the idea from, but he was a, had a profound effect on, on, on my life, Jay. Very so although I was born in this poverty in Tennessee, we finally moved to Buffalo and still around age 11, and the circumstances up here were rather different, you know, in an urban environment and more support system and schools, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, coming up, I had, listen, my father didn't live, he was never married to my mother, Jay. Mm-hmm. So I was an, I, 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 an out-of-wedlock birth, but I had very strong family support. And from his position as an out-of-wedlock father, he gave me support. So I had strong family support. And as I look back, I credit that with being a key to my being able to persist and to accomplish whatever I might have accomplished, is that support from the family. So it was a poor family, materially speaking. Right. But in terms of emotional support and all, it was a wealthy family, Jay. That's what I thought. And uh, yeah, and, and, and at the time I didn't realize it. And looking back, I realized all the more how important that warmth and support was for my success. One of the things I noticed in your book, and I, I applaud you for, is uh, you have underscored the importance of, of responsibility and taking uh, responsibility for your own actions. And you obviously did that in your life. How important is that to the concept of what you have outlined in your book? It is the heart of the concept, Jay. It is the heart of the concept. Uh, that's the way you succeed in life. You don't succeed on the basis of what someone else does for you. You succeed on the basis of what you do for yourself and what you have inside yourself that makes it possible. Without that, I don't think any person or people have succeeded. And my criticism of, of us is that too often, us, I mean black people, we're looking to some external uh, factor to enable us to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. That, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way life works. Life works through the intrinsic, internal factors 
that make it possible for us to meet our daily challenges and to fulfill our dreams and to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. So, indeed, that is at the heart of my book. It's at the heart of what I'm talking about. It's at the heart of our uh, ability to be able to uh, first understand our problems and understanding them to do something uh, that's going to work about those problems. And culturally, the black culture has some wonderful uh, individuals and and marvelous individuals that were leaders in their time and and place. Booker T. Washington is someone that you mention in your book. Share a little of his story and and, uh, perhaps why it's not being... Uh, promoted or or shared with uh, the the education system as as much as it should be. Jay, he's my hero. Uh, he's my hero, and I think he should be the hero for our people because he came along when we were, so to speak, just emerging from slavery, just beginning our new life of freedom. We were mm-hmm. kind of out in the desert, wandering around as to what to do, et cetera. Our leader, Frederick Douglass, had died. So we had no one to provide leadership for us as a free people. Booger T. Washington came along. He filled a void. He stepped in and said, okay, now you're free. We're on our own. What do we do with this freedom? And he carved out a pathway for us. And that pathway was a pathway that we were to travel through an emphasis on brains, property, and character. He says, now listen, if we're going to uh, uh, be part of the American mainstream, etc., what we must do is to pursue the same kind of pathway that other groups have pursued. They have sacrificed, they have worked hard, etc., and as a result, they have become part of American life. Now, if we are to do the same, we must do the same as they have done. We must sacrifice we must work hard, we must get our education, we must own our homes, and we must have strong families, etc. If we do that, like the other groups, we can become a successful part of American life. So he started what I refer to, Jay, in the book, as our self-responsibility tradition. Unfortunately, some of the radicals and others who came along in the 1960s felt that Washington was kind of out of style. He's old-fashioned. He was an Uncle Tom. He mm-hmm. accommodated the, 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 the white power structure because Washington said, in effect, listen, let's not try for our civil rights right away. Let's not focus on that. Let's first focus on preparation. Let's be prepared for the opportunities that come along. If we are not prepared, then what good are the opportunities going to do? But see, to some of our young black radicals in the 60s, et cetera, to them, that was wrong-headed. Uh, instead of waiting and, and being patient and compromising, et cetera, and preparing, we wanted, they wanted it right now. Yeah. We are entitled to our freedom right here and now. And therefore, Washington came into disrepute because that was not his point of view. It was theirs, not his. And therefore, the tradition of self responsibility which he started they through their I, I call it propaganda uh, I call it ideology or whatever they uh, preached the gospel that was the direct opposite and therefore led to Washington being in disrepute, disrepute which he is today people don't even want to mention his name give him any praise etc mm. 
because they see the feeling was he was holding us back because he was not advocating for our civil rights. And in that view, unless we had our civil rights, we couldn't make progress. Well, that was not Washington's view. Washington's view was, look, we can make progress if we are prepared, then we'll be in a position to advocate for our civil rights and to take advantage of them, you see. Absolutely. So, so, so the 1960s altered that mindset, and as a result led to Washington quite tragically, in my view, Jay, uh, coming into disrepute. Um, among us blacks sure. rather than held in high esteem as I think he should be because he set us up on, on a pathway to progress and to adaptation. You've given us uh, wonderful things to think about and uh, certainly some, some uh, I guess, not the traditional viewpoint of uh, many of the high-profile people who are looking for, I don't know, they, they have a, a, a mentality of of um, victimology, I guess, is another word that you've used in your book. You also have, have outlined the story of the Tuskegee Institute. Share a little with my listeners about that particular, uh, the viability of that institute. Uh, listen, it is the preeminent symbol of the what I call the self-responsibility tradition. And what we ourselves can accomplish on our own should we set our mind to it. You see, Washington started Tuskegee, and this is the beginning. Remember now, this was the beginning of the era of the Ku Klux Klan, etc. Mm-hmm. We had nothing whatsoever. And we were in a position to having to demonstrate, first to ourselves, really, and to, uh, you might say, the white society at large, that we were capable of handling our freedom. And Tus- uh, uh, Booker T. Washington came along. Started Tuskegee, it had $2,000 and nothing more. It had no land, no building, no students or anything else, but $2,000 from the state of Alabama. And with just this $2,000, he started out, got 30 students and so on. And in 1867, I believe, my date may be off but started this school and turned a school of 30 students into the preeminent black-owned, black-operated, black faculty, black administrative school in the United States of America. And it's today ranked the sixth best institution in the country. So from nothing, he built a black institution that rivaled white colleges far out distance any other black colleges in the South and demonstrated to ourselves and to white Southerners in particular that we were capable of handling our freedom, that we blacks were capable of doing something on our own. There lies the value of, Tus- of Tuskegee. And it was, it was, it was a, you see, often we look at Tuskegee, oh, he's great, he's a good educator, he established a fine school, etc. Yes, he did that. But Tuskegee was more than just a school. It was a symbol of what we blacks could do for ourselves and what we needed to do if we were to become a respected part of American life. So uh, that's what Tuskegee stands for. It stands for tradition. It stands for what we can do on our own if we exercise the will and the initiative, et cetera. And Washington was the one who made all of that possible and who did it all. And through just tremendous energy and imagination. Listen, uh, the, the students built the schools. The students and his faculty, and all, they built the schools and mm. all. 
They didn't turn to someone else. They didn't turn to the system and say, oh, give us, you come in and do it for us. Now, uh, they had support from, from donors from uh, 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 in the north and other places. It isn't that they didn't have external support. They had external financial support, et cetera. But the initiative and the drive, the imagination, the thoughts came from within with ex- some support from without. Well, Joe, uh, on the side of uh, education, you have got an extensive career, of course. What are your thoughts on charter schools? Are those something that should be examined and perhaps pursued, or what are your thoughts? Uh, they should be examined and destroyed. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jay, I'm I'm not for char- charter schools, and I'm not for them because I'm for public schools. Uh, the public uh, 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 school uh, uh is one of the great uh, things in American society. It is the bedrock of American civilization and society. The idea was to have public schools so as to uh, educate everybody and so as to bring about a real democracy, etc. And not just public schools anywhere, but public schools in the neighborhoods that were accessible to parents and people. You wouldn't have to travel and do it. Listen, Jay, when I came up in Tennessee, I had, I had to walk three miles to the school, mm-hmm. three miles back and forth to the school. Neighborhood schools, you go two or three blocks in the city, short distance, you're at your school, et cetera. Uh, we had a, 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 a two-room schoolhouse where maybe in, fourth, in one row was the fourth grade, another was the fifth grade and all this. We have modern schools today. Now, uh, why would you want to destroy all of that with char- charter schools? What charter schools amount to? It's basically taking out your better students from your other students and putting them in a separate school. Mm. Uh, and uh, what you do, and, and of course there's only so many that you can accommodate in that fashion. Let's say you accommodate 10% or 20%. What's going to happen to the other 80% of the students who are left behind? Interesting. Are, are we to, to consign them to an inferior education and give up on them? and say we invest our energy in charter schools, et cetera, I think that's misguided. Let's put our energy and resources in making public schools work, and I think they can work. They, they are not working because we, we are not going about it in the right way. It's not because they cannot work. But in charter True. schools, we're almost saying, oh, they can't work. We, we're going to have some other type of school altogether. Well, that's other nonsense. They can work if we have the will and the commitment to make it work. And this is where the self-responsibility tradition comes in. I like Because that. I think we as a people have to help make it work. Absolutely. We just can't sit back and criticize the public schools. We have to get in there and do our part, our, I mean the black community, in helping to make it work rather than just blaming the school. But rather than therefore the solution being, let's take out a few students and educate them and let's forget about the others. I think that's misguided, it's immoral, and I think it's contrary to the best interest of our people and to the nation as a whole. Other than that, how do you really feel about it? No, no I'm just I'm <laughs> Joe, 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 937 pages. How long did it take you to complete this? Uh, Jay, I did not start out with the idea of writing a book. Uh, so I kind of, I was writing a guide for the program that I'm proposing. So I was putting together a resource book for the faculty and staff so that they can mm-hmm. use it and understand the program, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, I decided to turn it into a book. Now, that's alone. Ultimately, therefore, it took me over a t- period of 10 years. 
But what I was doing, I was not concentrating on and the point that I'm making is that I was not concentrating on writing a book all along. I was writing a guide that I suddenly decided to turn into a book because I wanted to make the foundation viable. And I said this was a way of doing it. So without conscientiously working hard on it, uh, it took me a period of 10 years. And maybe for the last couple of years, I decided to devote much more time to it and really concentrate it on uh, so uh, for that reason, it, it took and – and listen, Jay, I'm very happy it did because then I, it, I had a lot of thinking time to think about it and pull this together. I wasn't in a rush, so I was able to think it through and do it more thoroughly uh, and so on without having any deadlines, et cetera, as a result of which – I think I have a better product. Well, I love the book. I, I do appreciate and respect your research in it as well. And anyone out there that is uh, concerned about education, regardless of where you live, uh, you might get a copy of this just to get the resources that are available in it. And also the background story and the history that you have provided is uh, invaluable to any reader. You also have uh, underscored the importance of family uh, family unit and, and other things that I think are a concern to people across the board across the country. Sir, the title, The American, the African-American Male School Adaptability Crisis, that is the title, so if they're doing a search for it, they'll have to look under that name, or they can look under your name, Joe L. Remsen, R-E-M-P-S-O-N. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of this book? They can get a copy on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and from Author House itself, who's the publisher, uh, and they can go to my website. I, uh, we, the foundation has a website. It's www.remsonfoundation.org. And go to that website, and they can order a copy of that book through that website. And I urge them to go to the website, incidentally. Uh, they'll get a good summary of the book, etc. And incidentally, Jay, it's a very long book. But you don't have to read every page or every chapter. The first and last books really give you a very good idea of the book. And as you've just kind of indicated, a lot of parts of the book I think that anyone would be interested in. If you're interested in IQ and its role in it, if you're interested in, in, in Dr. King and the role that he might play in it, and President Obama has a role in it. Black culture has a role in it. All of those topics are covered. And I think it's worth having as a resource book uh, for anyone, as you've indicated, who's interested in the, in, 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 in the topic. Absolutely. And, Joe, I uh, personally appreciate your hard work in putting this together and uh, wish you the best with your association, with your uh, organization that you have created. Again, the title of the book is The African-American Male School Adaptability Crisis. A long mouthful, but you can do a, an easier search perhaps under the author's name, Joe L. Remsen, R-E-M-P-S-O-N. Sir, thank you for joining me today, and best to you and yours, and uh, hopefully this will be a runaway success. Thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate your having me. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. 
and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Characteristics of True Christianity, and authors of this book are Stephen and E. Sue Mao. Thank you, sir, for joining me. This is Pastor Steve. Welcome, sir. How are you doing, sir? Doing well, sir. You have a book that is uh, how many years in the making? Well, I've been working on it for about four or five years now. And I understand your background was not always in religious service. Uh, you started out life uh, trying to follow a different career. Uh, share with my listeners a little of your background. Well, I started out, I didn't know the uh, Lord until I was 35. Uh, I had a very rugged life before that. I was a traveling musician, traveled all over the country. I was uh, involved in drugs and alcohol. I had wound up going to prison when I was 19 years old. I had just really struggled with life, and when my wife and I got married, the... uh, Uh, I just knew that I was going to be dead by the time I was 35 years old, and I continued to tell my wife that. Well, Mm. over the period of about 13 years, uh, when we finally met the Lord, it was one month before my 35th birthday. And so I was indeed dead to myself and alive to Christ by the time I was 35, and uh, we had immediately went into the ministry from that point. That's an incredible story. Uh, you you uh, had a life that's changed, obviously, and your book deals with what you call the true characteristics or characteristics of true Christianity. And by looking at the titles of the different chapters, uh, you are dealing with, I would say, the fundamentals. Would that be the right way to describe this? Oh, absolutely. And, and they're a lot like Lego building blocks. Uh, Christians make a mistake sometimes of thinking, we have to have everything perfect, and of course that would that would be wonderful. I would like to even be right once in a while, let alone perfect. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, it, it, you have to build one upon the other, precept upon precept. And just because you might be in stage four doesn't mean that you've accomplished one, two, and three completely. But they have to be present. Why did you decide you wanted to share this? There are a lot of books dealing with religious activity, of faith, of foundational faith subjects. What was the motivation to get you to do this book? Well, I have watched TV for years, and, and I've listened to many, many different pastors, and I've heard a lot of people in churches say, I don't know, does, does that, that does doesn't seem Christian to me. Is is there some way we can tell, or do we just have to automatically accept everything that comes out of everybody's mouth? And and as I began to pray about it, the Lord showed me that there is very definite ways to tell. We do not have the right to judge anybody's salvation. That is a matter of the heart, and only God can see man's heart. 
but we do have every every single person i don't care whether they're christian or non-christian every person alive uh creates fruit and by that i mean characteristics and uh The Bible says that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So the only way that we can have any semblance of knowing what's going on in somebody's heart is by the fruit they produce. Right. The chapters, you start off with one that's a fairly common phrase used or or, uh, adaptable or, or evident in the Christian community, a new birth. Then you go to growth, a new dress, a radiant life. Now, a new dress, uh, did your wife contribute to that chapter? <laughs> oh, yes, but not in the sense you think. Oh. It's uh, it's not so much the clothes you wear, although the, in, ser- in all seriousness that will be affected, but it means putting on uh, a new life in Christ. It's it's what you were, uh, the, the Bible says in Second Corinthians 5.17, that if anything is, in, if you are in Christ, old things are passed away and all things become new. It means that you don't think the same, you don't act the same, you don't dress the same, you don't talk the same. And so, and it becomes a very visible thing. Uh, a prime example I have seen was uh, when we first started going to church, there was back in what they call the goth movement, and people were all very uh, darkly dressed Mm -hmm. and and dark makeups and those kind of things. And uh, then when you have a true encounter with Jesus, you notice that they begin to change. Their countenance is different. Their dress is different. Their mannerisms are different. And that's what we mean by new dress. You have... uh condense this down into six or seven chapters and uh, really about a hundred pages. When you began to write this, did you have a general consensus or thinking about who would find this book informative and helpful in their Christian walk? Well, honestly, I'm, I'm praying and believing that this is for everybody. We tried to write it in a, in a very simple manny, manner, easy to understand, and that because I believe we all have questions. I believe we all have questions about what is right and what is wrong, and, and you, w- you wouldn't think that that would be something that goes on today, but we do. We all struggle. And this is just kind of a, a simple guide to say, you know, do I know for sure? No, but I can examine this fruit, and we've all tasted bad grapes or bad other things and you you really kind of spit them out of your mouth rather yes. quickly so you know we this is just a way for us to be able to focus and have fellowship and of course our spirits one will witness with another but there because even the word tells us that even the devil can appear as an angel of light his job is to deceive well if we don't have guidelines that we can kind of kind of base our decisions on, then the church can be deceived, and and that's not a good thing. No, I wouldn't think it would be, not for somebody or an organization or a, an entity that's wanting to promote uh, healthy choices and, and good spiritual choices in their life. You have, uh, I think, also shed the spotlight on a few characters in Old Testament, New Testament that might give us hope. Uh, who do you think is is possibly the most 
unusual or encouraging character that you have outlined? Well, to me, the most encouraging character is David. Uh, David was anointed king as a young boy, uh, and he was no more than a shepherd, and, and his life went on. But David became uh, king of Israel, God's chosen people. The Word says he's a man after God's own heart, and yes, and yet, he had a man killed so he could sleep with uh, uh, his wife. He committed adultery. He did all kinds of things that that uh, we we just you know in the normal we go that's not right. How can you do that? But and how can you have a man? How can you be a man after God's own heart and have those characteristics? But the the love for God was so great in his heart and he had a willing heart that he was willing to change what was wrong david is a is a and the other one to me the new testament example would be paul paul was a, the greatest persecutor of the church there ever was and uh, he hated the church with a passion until he met jesus and then he wrote 70% of the new testament he uh he gave his life completely over. He no longer cared about who he was, but the people's lives that he could affect. I think it's also unique when you look at the life of Peter. Now, Jesus, as uh, the Lord, selected him to be one of his disciples, and yet he wasn't a very successful example of being a good disciple. No, he wasn't. In all actuality, uh, most people would call Peter a failure because he he was braggadocious. He was uh, he was rough. He was a real what you would call a man's man. And yet, when the chips were down, he denied Jesus not once but three times. And yet, we see with the love of of Jesus that after Jesus was uh, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And when Mary had met him on the path, he said, go tell my disciples and Peter. And Peter became such a man of God. He changed so much that uh, the book of Acts tells us that even as he was walking down the street, people would carry their friends and relatives out in the street so that his shadow might pass over him because even his shadow was affecting people's lives. Incredible uh, to look at his story and also his later life and, and how he died, those uh, those parts of his existence and testimony are certainly strong and encouraging to people like me who are not perfect. And I, I'm assuming from what you're describing, your book does deal with the imperfections of others and how to become an overcomer. Oh, yes, yes. You know, when it... We... The church today... Uh, We've, we have forgotten where we've come from. We're all sinners saved by grace. And it's because of his love and compassion and mercy on us. And sometimes when we get in the faith for a while, we kind of forget where we came from. And what it says is, is that this book says, you know, yes, I'm flawed. I have mistakes. I've made mistakes. I, I do things wrong even today. And yet... God still loves me, and what that allows me to do when I realize that is that because I'm human 
and I know that you're human, then you're entitled to the same mercy and grace and compassion that God shows me. And he, and Jesus tells us when we pray, he said, if you won't forgive others, in the Lord's Prayer, he said, forgive us as we forgive others. If we refuse to forgive others for their mistakes, for their shortcomings, then God won't forgive us. And that's critical. It certainly would be. Is this your first uh, book of, that's been released, or, or where are yes, you on is. your? Are you planning to to do a follow up? Uh, yes, we are in the process of. Uh, we've got two going right now. One is a verse by verse study of Matthew. We've completed it, and uh, we're in the process of finishing it out and editing. And then the other one, the Lord is. Uh, kind of spoken to me about a title and a, a new work we're going to call it the modern moses hmm now that's intriguing uh, those should be of interest to my listeners the title of your book this particular first release is characteristics of true christianity which they can find by doing a search under that name and then by the author stephen with a v e n and e initial sue and the last name mao M-A-U-G-H, for those who uh, might have trouble finding you under the search Mao. Sir, how do we get copies of your book? Well, it has been released now as of November 1st, nationwide. Uh, It's supposed to be available on Amazon and through Author House Publishing, and uh, all your local bookstores can get it, so uh, it's readily available. And I would say, by looking at the content, this might be a good study guide for those who are in a teaching scenario in their congregation. They could use it as a teaching guide. Yes, sir. We've, matter of fact, we've had it used uh, several times in different churches, and we have taught it. And uh, I also go into the uh, prison system and uh, work with Teen Challenge, and we teach it there, too. Excellent. Is there a website also they can connect with you? Yes, it's uh, www.stephenmao.com. M-A-U-G-H. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to visiting with you in the future, and best of luck with this book. Hopefully it will be a runaway for you and uh, influence a lot of people to make some great choices. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful day. All right, sir. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. 
The title of the book, Getting Better, Healing Prescriptions for Patients, Families, and Friends, 100 milligrams healing, 75 milligrams humor, and the author is Mark Landiak, and Mark joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mark. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us, and this is your story. This isn't some bunch of theory. What we're going to hear is from you who have gone through this incredible journey with a very rare disease. And so your book is, as you put it, a collection of one patient's experiences as he learns how to cope with a debilitating disease for which there is no cure and learns how to get better. And what I was amazed in reading your material of how many rare diseases there are, my goodness. Yeah, pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, 7,000 7, registered rare diseases out there. And what's interesting is 95% of rare diseases have no drugs approved by the FDA for treatment. There just isn't a whole lot of money going into uh, research and development for rare diseases just because there's not enough people for the... Um, pharmaceutical companies to make a whole lot of money on it, so therefore with the amount of regulation from the federal government that's involved and the amount of time that it takes to get a drug approved, it just is not um, cost effective for them to do it, therefore there isn't a whole lot of research that goes into it, so it's a lot of trial and error. We're talking about 70 million people. Yes, yes indeed, and what's interesting is uh, almost 50% of those are kids. Wow. Children. Wow. Right. Well, let's start with your story. It's 100% real, this book. Uh, it's, uh, obviously, it's a serious topic, but it's also very funny because, as your title points out, you've got to have humor in healing. But let's start with the Grand Canyon, folks. That's where this started. Go ahead. <laughs> well, um, that's true. It, it uh, started in the Grand Canyon. My daughter and I had, um, as sort of our, our daddy-daughter thing to do, is we hiked and backpacked in the Grand Canyon, and or at least did. And uh, one time, five years ago approximately, she uh, called me up and she said, Dad, it's spring break. What are you doing? And uh, she said, do you want to go hike the canyon? And I said, absolutely. You bet. Let's go. And um, now... I had always been real healthy, Steve. I, I never really spent a day in a hospital in my entire life, didn't take any medications, uh, and um, tried to eat right and exercise, keep myself in good shape. So we get there, and, and um, we hike down to the bottom, and then we uh, hike around on the bottom. We did um, a 14-mile hike the day before uh, the disaster happened, and um, when we were hiking out, uh, we got up in the morning, beautiful day, started up, and about 20 minutes into the hike out, which is uh, fairly rigorous and, and um, uh, a straight-up type hike out, I start um, having some really serious symptoms. Uh, heart rate starts racing. My uh, body breaks into a sweat. I'm freezing cold, even though it's 85 degrees out. And um, and my legs can't move. I mean, I literally can't uh, I can't walk. And I'm going, oh my gosh, you know what the heck is going on? I thought I was dehydrated, so I sat down and um, rested for a little bit. Started up again, and um, uh, lo and behold, uh, 
400 yards further, uh, same thing happened. And uh, and that was sort of my um, indoctrination into the world of sarcoidosis, even though I had no clue what it was that was happening to me. A very rare disease. That it is, yeah. There's less than 200,000 people that actually have sarcoidosis in the United States, and that's uh, uh, kind of what they what they call a rare disease. If less than 200,000 people have it, then it's um, classified as a rare disease. So somehow you get out of the Grand Canyon and go see the doctor. Yeah, my, my daughter, literally, thank God she's in phenomenal condition, she uh, literally put her hands on the back of my pack and pushed me up and out of the canyon for about seven hours. So uh, wow. I really owe my... Uh, Oh, my life to my daughter, Elise. Pretty amazing kid. So what's your doctor saying to you after this incredible surprise, unexpected uh, challenge, medical challenge that you never, ever expected coming out of the Grand Canyon? All right. So um, in true uh, male ego-oriented form, I didn't go to the doctor. I, I <laughs> got up to the top. Within a, a couple of hours, I was feeling good again. And uh, so I said, oh, okay, I just, I sloughed it off as something that was probably dehydration and uh, uh, I said, okay, it was probably just you know, an off day and because uh, I was feeling okay and I didn't go to the doctor. Wow. Yeah, what an idiot, huh? <laughs> so. Well, I think a lot of us would probably do the same. You know, again, <laughs> you know, you you were feeling much better and thought, well, that. Must have been something to do with uh, all this physical stress I was putting on myself. Yeah, it was a bit of a fluke, so it couldn't happen to me. I couldn't be sick. So, uh, yeah, it took a couple more incidents, Steve, before I finally actually did get to the doctor. I, I was in a, a 5K race with my boys and um, had another disaster on that. I got you know, about 400 yards into that and and had to slow down and stop and then tried to start and stop a couple more times and then realized, all right, something, something's not right here. So um, I went in to see my doctor, and uh, he came back in the room and said, hey, how you feeling? And I said, well, I feel okay right now. He goes, I have a cardiologist on the phone, and I sent him your EKG, and he, he wants to see you immediately. And I said, you're kidding me. And uh, so I went over to see the cardiologist, and and he starts talking about uh, doing a whole bunch of tests on me. He sent me to the hospital. And I, I, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, uh, I can do that next week. I'm going to be you know, traveling tomorrow. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm going to do it right now. Right now. Wow. He's sending you to the hospital right now. And I go, you got to be kidding me. So, uh that that started a 10-month ordeal of them trying to figure out what was going on with me. And um, I went to, I can't even tell you how many doctors trying to uh, to figure it out, and um, they couldn't find what was going on inside my body. So they finally pinpoint this rare disease. Yeah, they didn't really pinpoint it. I am um, uh, in another act of, uh, uh, well, let's say questionable judgment. Um, I decided um, they had me pumped full of steroids. And uh, so um, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm feeling okay. And uh, and I, I used to play a lot of racquetball. So I entered a tournament <laughs> just, uh, just 
for no particular reason other than it felt like I, you know, I needed some exercise. And uh, I didn't get through my first game. Um, I collapsed outside the court, and the paramedics had to come and revive me. And uh, uh, I don't even remember too much about the incident except for some guy pounded on my chest pretty good, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm in the hospital. So what do you attribute to recovering to where you are today and also the genesis of this book? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. And, and while I was there, I didn't watch a whole lot of TV. Um, I started journaling. And, um, uh, you know, the book is sort of an accident. I didn't really plan to write a book. I started journaling and uh, and and listening and watching the things that went around me, and I tried to figure out, okay, how do how do I get out of this bind that I'm in? You know, what uh, you know, a doctor told me that um, they said, well, you know, we're we're surprised you're still here, and I said, wow, you know, that's pretty serious. And then so I figured, okay, what what do I have to do to stay around a little bit longer? <laughs> and uh, and that's what sort of the genesis of getting better was. I really kind of looked at. Um, a lot of the things just beyond what the doctors were doing to what I could do myself to have a positive influence on my own health. And that's where the five F's came from. The five F's of healing. Yes, and um, uh, which is all centered around, all right, so if, because at one point, I didn't know if I was going to get better. And uh, in fact, I didn't know if I, how long I had, because they you know, if you read up on cardiac sarcoidosis, it's pretty serious stuff. And um, and I said, all right, well, how do I get better if not, in, from a health standpoint, how do I get better in some other facet of my life? And then, uh, and what can I do uh, in terms of doing everything possible to get better on the physical side as well? And I boiled it down to um, uh, faith, family, friends, Fitness and fitness, both mental and physical fitness, because the mental game is a big, big part of the healing process as well. And and then the last one was fun, because I didn't want to uh, succumb to uh, depression or um, you know the negative thoughts that go along with really being seriously ill. And if you've got some folks out there that are are listening and they've been seriously injured or are seriously ill, you know they they probably know what I'm talking about. And um, uh, so I, I boiled it down into these areas, and I said, all right, what are all the things that I can do that I can have some control over that will make me uh, at least feel better and get me through the day and have maybe a little better quality of life? And so that's where the whole process started. And, um, you know, as I said, I, I just started journaling and uh, writing things down and and that's where all this came came up, and uh, you know, I kind of learned about um, you know things that I needed to do. I was interfacing with uh, family or friends or clergy or uh, my nurses uh, or the uh, the doctors that came to see me, and and uh, it worked out pretty well. So again, everyone, we're talking about the five F's of healing: faith family, friends, fitness, and fun. So this is much more than, obviously, operations and medications. Your book, Getting Better, seems to me, in listening to you, is really empowering. And you basically, you're saying that patients have a whole lot more control over their 
own healing than they realize. Yeah, and not only that, it's even one more step is you have to take control over your own healing. Uh, because the, the medical community does what the medical community knows how to do. And um, for 10 months, they had no clue what was going on with me. And so I, I would do everything that, that I could to help them to help me. And at the same time, when I had people coming in, you know, when you're in the hospital and you're, you're laying there and people are coming in to visit you and, um, uh, you know, they, they just stare at you and, you know, you have these conversations. Uh, but I said, all right, so what, what can I do to um, get the folks that were coming in and visiting me to, to help me with my healing? And what I found out was I needed to really coach them. I needed to tell my family members what I needed from them. I needed to tell my friends what I needed from them. So, for example, I had some, uh, a group of friends that have great senses of humor. So I said, what I'd like you to do is keep me laughing. You know, so when you come in, tell me a joke. When you come in, uh, you know, kid around with me. Don't, don't go into the medical mode with, oh, no, look at this poor son of a gun sitting in the bed. Um, you know, keep me laughing. You know, get me smiling. Give me something to think about other than what's going on inside my body. And um, uh, and they did that. And, boy, it was miraculous. I mean, I, I just felt so much better the way that I approached everything. Like, you're going into procedures and, uh, uh, you know, taking a, a rather toxic um, treatment program with the medications that I had. Uh, all of those things just made such a big difference. And, you know, when my friends would come over, for example, I would never stay in the bed. I would say, come on, let's, let's go walk around the floor a little bit. And even when I got out of the hospital, what was interesting is they would give me a call and they said, would you like to go walk? And, uh, and sometimes I would tell them, you know, they said, what can, what can I do for you? And I said, when you get that question, you know, if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. And I think most patients just let that line go. And, what I learned was when someone makes that offer, take them up on that offer. And so what I would say is, hey, what, would you come walk with me? And uh, it's so important when you're sick to um, not just lay around feeling sick. So for me, it's even when I felt horrible, knowing that I had to get up in the morning and go for a short, slow walk around my block, because that's all I could do at that time, um, because a friend was coming over, made all the difference in the world. And then they'd hang out and, you know, we'd have, uh, uh, you know, maybe a little breakfast or, or something and, and we'd chuckle over some things that were going on and, you know, it starts your day off that much better. So you're in a mental uh, frame of mind that really prepares you to heal that day. Your book will have readers laughing and smiling. Uh, there's some <laughs> ridiculous stories that you share <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah there's there's two good ones. Uh, did um, uh, you have any one in particular that? Uh, <laughs> no, just give us one of them real quick. All right. Well, uh, so <laughs> you always hear kind of funny stuff that's in, in, going on in the hospital. So one morning I'm I'm laying there in bed and um, I hear the nurse talking outside my room, and this has got to be like six o'clock in the morning or something like that. I just woke up. And then I hear the one nurse yell, Hey, Mary, 620 had a bowel movement. 
And then the other nurse goes, oh, that's great. Did you document it? Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so and I, it just, for some reason, just struck me funny, and I just started laughing hysterically. And I said, you know, who yells this kind of confer- <laughs> conversation at the top of their lung? It just doesn't happen outside the hospital, right? You know, it's, uh, so it, it, it struck me funny, and those types of things that uh, that happen on a regular basis. The phlebotomists, every morning they would come around and they would do their labs. And um, so when they'd walk in uh, in my room, uh, I would go, oh, no, you know, here they come, but... Uh, so instead of of just going, oh no, no, go away, I would I would say, oh Sharon, thank goodness you're here. I've been waiting for you all night. <laughs> <laughs> and and one morning I I shuffled out of my room and I had taken a paper towel roll and right off of my my room was right off the elevator where they would come out every morning. And so I took a black magic marker and I taped up on the wall all labs canceled today. <laughs> it was the first thing they saw when they got off the elevator. And of course, I'd been kidding around with them for several days, so they probably figured out who it was immediately. And I get this knock at my door, and uh, I go, come on in. And, and she goes, hey, Mark, I got good news and uh, and bad news. And I said, well, what what's the good news? She goes, the labs are back on. I go, well, that's not good news. I said, what's the bad news? She goes, we're starting with you. <laughs> Well, you you were contagious. You got everyone in a different frame of mind, and that's what this book is all about. It's a guide to help people suffering from serious illness or disease. Again, everyone, the title, Getting Better, Healing Prescriptions for Patients, Families, and Friends, 100 milligrams healing and 75 milligrams humor. And we've been talking to Mark Landiak. Mark, what's the best way to get your book? Well, see, there's a couple of ways. Of course, you can get it on Amazon, but all the proceeds from the book are going to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and for patient assistance and research for a cure to sarcoidosis and other rare disease. So um, if they go to my site at gettingbetterwithmark.com, all one word, uh, gettingbetterwithmark.com, they can order it on the site, and that's where the maximum amount of contribution goes back to the foundation. Uh, so um, uh, that's my recommended way to purchase it, but certainly they can get it at Barnes & Noble or on uh, Author House or on Amazon as well. Gettingbetterwithmark.com, everyone, and I believe after listening to you, Mark, people are going to get better with you. So amazing story, and what's great about this it has so far a a happy ending doesn't it you know what steve it's been miraculous and it's really been incredible i feel uh uh, so blessed to be in the position i am right now and um uh you know i feel like um you know if you apply a lot of these strategies you know you can't help but feel a little bit better and just uh you know, deal with your situation and i've gotten some some wonderful letters from folks who have read the book and there's some uh, interesting reviews that are on Amazon from folks, and and uh, boy, we're just getting really some some great feedback from uh, from readers on it, and I'm I'm uh, just delighted that people are are finding some benefit from it, and maybe uh, maybe feeling a little better in the in the process. Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us on Author Talk. Steve, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 